This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Brotherless Night. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. So Whit, what do you know about lone women? I know that this is probably, that would probably be a question that would be better for you to answer than, than for me. Although, I don't think of you as a lone woman. Do you think of yourself as a lone woman or? Sometimes, I, I mean... I don't know. What's the opposite of a lone woman? Um, I couldn't think of an adjective there. I don't know. I don't know. That's a that's a good question. Um, but I think I do sometimes feel like a lone woman. I suspect many, many women do. Um, and I know that as a lone woman and as a person of color, um, as a woman of color, I would be very wary about traveling all alone up and down the coast and across the country on boats and trains, especially back in the early 1900s. Is this some kind of experiential vacation that you've got planned that I don't know about? You already went to AWP, so wasn't that hard enough? Well, um, it's true that my, yeah, my upcoming travel is is pretty much all via historical fiction, um, which as our listeners know is one of my favorite things. And I'm always excited to read stories of women, and, and again, especially women of color who choose to make it on their own. So I'm thrilled to talk to our guest today, and and he's a return, a return visitor to the podcast, um, Victor Laval's new novel, Lone Women, is about a black woman, Adelaide Henry, who strikes out on her own in 1915. And at the beginning of her journey, she's got hardly anything with her, just a just a steamer trunk and a lot of determination. Yeah, just a steamer trunk. That's all. Um, uh, we'll get to that steamer trunk in a minute. But uh, first, a little more about our guest. Victor is the author of five novels, two novellas and a collection of short stories. He has written two graphic novel series as well. His novels have been included in best of the year lists by the New York Times Book Review, the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, Chicago Tribune, The Nation, and Publishers Weekly, among others. He has been the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship, an American Book Award, the Shirley Jackson Award, the World Fantasy Award, and the Key to Southeast Queens, among many other wonderful honors. He lives in the Bronx with his wife, the writer Emily Rabito, and their kids, he teaches creative writing at Columbia University. Victor, welcome back to the show. It's real good to be back. It's great to have you with us again. And, and um, for our listeners who might not remember, we you were first with us on the Halloween episode in 2019, one of my all-time favorites um, as a person who loves horror, but also like just sometimes can't can't bring myself to, to listen to it. Your work, I can't stop myself. Um, and at the beginning of Lone Women, we see a young black woman, Adelaide Henry, and she's dousing her home with gasoline. And then she makes her way 
to her already dead parents' bedroom, and she pours gas on their bodies as well. I mean, um, so right off the bat, we're presented with this huge question because there's kind of a gap between Adelaide's uh, character and interiority and consciousness and what we might assume given the circumstances that she is responsible for. There's something the novel poses us with a question of like how this will be reconciled. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about finding your way to that pretty horrifying gripping opening and, and figuring out what you did and didn't want to reveal. Yeah, for sure. So uh, in a way, the that opening was the first was actually the first thing I thought of. Most of the times, most of the other things I've written, the beginning is the last thing uh, oh, I think of. Um, uh, mostly just because I have to know, I have to tell myself the whole story so that I can go back and figure out, oh, this is where the story should begin. The most interesting start, that kind of thing. Um, but this one came to me uh, and originally it was just her standing at the foot of her parents' bed they were both dead and had been sort of torn limb from limb. And I was sort of like, oh, that's interesting. And I'd been reading all these books about lone women homesteaders. So she was in period gear, uh, right? It wasn't a modern day uh, scene. And I just started saying like, okay, well, what's she going to do if her parents are dead? You know, she could stay in the house with the corpses. That feels too horror movie-ish in a way that I've seen before kind of thing. And then I said, well, what if she's trying to escape? What if she's trying to flee? And I said, okay, well, what's she going to do with the evidence? And I said, I guess she's got to burn it. And uh, that was the sort of like beginning of the questions for me, even before the steamer trunk, even before I knew where things were going to go from there. It was that. It's interesting the way that, I mean, this is how fiction works is, is that a lot of imagination, people are like, is it inspiration? A lot of that imagination is, is just answering questions, you know, that are sort of yes, posed by sure. the position that your characters are in, you know, and that leads to, to plot. Anyway, after this start that you we were just describing, uh, Adelaide goes to Montana by way of boat and various other, uh, conveyances, uh, She's got this, she's carrying this locked steamer trunk that we've already mentioned with her. Um, it's very heavy, hard to move around and makes her nervous and uh, makes the reader nervous, I, I would say. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we find out, we're not going to spoilerize what's in the uh, in the steamer trunk, <laughs> but uh, you did say yeah. in an earlier interview, in the earlier interview that we did with you, you said the great thing that horror can do is make use of a device like a monster, say, in order to make the reader understand how a thing feels which is not always the same as explaining what actually happened. So that trunk is kind of a device like that, like it's literal and metaphorical baggage that she's carrying with her. Could you talk yeah. about that part of the story and developing that idea? Yeah, I mean, you know, in a way, like exactly your point there, uh, there was a part of me at a certain point that said like, is this too on the nose? Like it's literally baggage, <laughs> it's figuratively baggage, everything. But, you know, uh, one of the things I'm learning as I write more and more is to stop overthinking a thing, you know, and not maybe not just writing it like as a human. Uh, sometimes you just I was like, uh, that's the idea. Just go with that idea and let's just make the most fun with it. And that the fun then became, well, what's in that trunk? Right. And uh, and as you say, there's uh, we're not revealing too much, but I think it's fair to say that something very surprising and strange but did you brought. know right away what was in the trunk or did you have to go through a discovery process as a writer to figure out what was in the trunk? Well, here's the, so the thing is like, I knew what was in the trunk all along, but I didn't know, 
But in a way, I guess I would say like I knew the first level of what it was. Mm -hmm. Like if you were going to sort of like uh, touch it with your hands, with your eyes closed, I knew that. But I didn't know on the deeper level what it was. Uh, and that and like so within the book, there's uh, almost like two levels of reveal, at least for what was in the trunk. Um, and I didn't have any idea of what the second level of reveal was going to be right away. Um, that was the thing that was sort of part of the discovery, uh, both when I like the original version of this was a long story that I had in an anthology that came out more than 10 years ago now. Um, called uh, Long Hidden, and it was like speculative fiction taking place at periods of time in the past. Um, and in that one, it, like, uh, it's a very sort of, it's like that first third or so of the of the novel, uh, although still very sort of sketchy, right? Like I filled things out a lot more, the whole farmhouse and all that stuff was there, uh, was not there rather, it was more like in my head and it was just what was sending her running. Um, but I had to, I knew there was something there, but what it really deeply was and what it really meant took a couple of years oh, wow. to figure out. Well, I mean, when you create, make, move something from short story to a novel, you're going to have to have, an, I mean, mo novels are about modulation, right? You can't, right. you have to keep modulating the story, right? And uh, yeah, so I thought that the, the modulation that happens at the end of the book was also very effective, which we're not going to tell people about. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, read so we, I mean, I feel like this is, I mean, I, I learned a lot about, I feel like, reveals reading the book. Um, I mean, sort of beyond the immersive pleasure of just finding out what happened. Um, I think sometimes, you know, especially when I teach beginning writers, I feel like they don't want their characters to have any problems because they're worried that they have to solve them. And um, here, right. yeah, like watching reveal after reveal after reveal um, and plot turns that were kind of, endless, I mean, endlessly satisfying. Whereas I feel like, yeah, so much of the time the struggle is to find a way to surprise while it, keeping it also logical. Um, right. And so, yeah, the trunk is this great object. And another, like the a thing that the story does is kind of zoom in on that lock, um, the lock on the trunk. And um, yes. yeah. And yes. so there's this kind of cinematic, <laughs> like, is how's the lock doing? Is the, is the lock stable? Um, where's the key? And so Adelaide takes the trunk from California to Montana. She's going to be a homesteader. And, and you referred before to reading books about lone women homesteaders. And I'm curious to get back to that in a second. But so in doing in taking this journey, she goes from being part of an almost entirely black community to a predominantly white one. And this is part of her sense of unease. And and, you know, I think for understandable reasons, she's ill at ease traveling alone would be anyway. But then also this kind of the, the racial and gender dynamics of this, um, I think, are present, of course, for travelers even now. Um, and you're from you're from Queens, New York, uh, nowhere near Montana. Um, so I'm yes. so I'm curious about how you yes. started reading these like lone women homesteader uh, narratives. Why you chose to set this novel in Big Sky Country, and and what kind of research you did to capture the experiences of specifically Black women during this time period? Because there's not only Adelaide. There's like Adelaide arrives in Montana. There's kind of like rumors of other Black women, and and eventually we we meet some of them. Right. Yes. Well, so I, um, this actually, this whole book began with, um, I don't know if you all do this, but like, uh, I, if I, uh, would, if I, you know, this is pre COVID, I guess days, if I was going to do a reading somewhere, um, what I, if it's a place, if I'm going to a place where I probably am never going to be again, uh, what I try to do is buy a book of local history, uh, while I'm there so that I might read about the place I've been 
because there's a decent chance I didn't experience it very much. You know, uh, you show up for the day, you do your reading, maybe you meet with students, and then the next day you're on a flight home. Uh, so you don't get to see the place. And so I was at the University of Montana doing like a visiting job. Maybe I was there for two, three days, if I can remember. Um, but I was busy most of the time, so I really didn't get to see the town at all. Uh, so I went to the university bookstore at that point. Usually I try to go to a bookstore in town, but this time I was at the university. And they had a local history section. And as I was browsing through it, I came across this book called Montana Women Homesteaders, A Field of One's Own uh, by Dr. Sarah Carter. And that was like, number one, I just didn't know there were women homesteaders on their own. You know, like uh, I think I had my picture of what homesteading was from popular entertainment. And it was John Wayne or Clint Eastwood. It was maybe maybe it was a Little House on the Prairie kind of thing. But that even there, uh, there's a uh, white family. There's uh, oh, There are women, obviously, and daughters. But it's the dad's story. It's Pa's story kind of thing. Um, so I just was fascinated by this and I just picked it up just to read about it. And the more I read about it, uh, the more I was just like, wow, these women just going out on their own to these places are really remarkable. There were certainly, there were married couples who went, there were whole families who went, but this was a very specific subset of women who specifically went alone. Um, and I was just endlessly fascinated with them. And then I became that much more fascinated as my picture of Montana also became more racially and ethnically diverse, right? The first time there's a mention that there was a black woman homesteader out there. Um, then uh, when I found out there was a Chinese population in Montana uh, to a much greater degree than there is now, that there were Japanese homesteaders, not homesteaders, but Japanese uh, own, uh, like um, store owners and things like that, people who came not just for the railroad, that was certainly one of the things that brought people out there, but people who were also coming just to do the exact same thing, which was to try to make a life on this land where the original inhabitants had been either killed or sent away, uh, right? Um, and uh, the more I dove into this, the more absolutely amazed I was. But then I thought, like, as you said, like, I'm a kid from Queens. Maybe it's just that I don't know anything about all this. Uh, and it's common knowledge to everyone r around here. So I asked the friends I'd made at the University of Montana, uh, faculty who either were raised in Montana or who had moved there for work, and to a person, none of them had heard of these lone women. Oh, wow. None of them. And that's when I said, like, okay, I think I could tell this story in a way that might be interesting. Or at least I think this isn't a story that's been told a whole bunch already um, in fiction. And then to make it more personal, I guess... Um, as I was reading along and I started thinking like, maybe I could tell a story like this, I had to find a way to uh, have a more personal investment in this story so I could feel grounded with it. And the comparison I started making in my head was to my mother who came from Uganda to New York uh, with nothing, right? Uh, or, um, and who soon brought my grandmother and, as, and I started sort of pairing them together as two different eras and styles of homesteading. But either way, it was these women crossing either the country or the globe to try to start up in a place that might be pretty hostile to them. And that once I started seeing my mom and grandma in them, um, I could start to have a, a way in emotionally uh, that wouldn't just be the, the facts I'd learned. There's a letter you mention in uh, the novel that Adelaide reads from a woman named Maddie T. Kramer. 
Uh, is that a real person or is that an invented person? Or did such letters like that sort of recruit people like Adelaide to, to go out into the countryside? Oh, no, she was a real person. Okay, uh, I thought maybe and, uh, that was true. Yeah, yeah, that is true. And in fact, uh, one of the things I sort of helped myself to was that except for the, ish, the except for what's in the trunk, everything else in this story had to be factually accurate. Oh, wow. And so, like, there's nothing else in this. I might, you know, obviously, like, I might throw things so together. Letter, I should just say for the listeners that it's like a testimonial of someone who has made it, you know, doing this homesteading in that you know, sort of teaches other women or, or invites other women yes. to go. But the other part of it is, which I have the wagon driver sort of poke at is, but her her testimonial was funded by, and she was paid by the railway company who would only benefit from women coming out to Montana and the and various areas like that because they would have to buy railway tickets to get there. So, you know, is that that blend that very American, maybe not just American, but very American blend of like um ambition and commerce uh sort of feeding on each other. Um I did sort of yeah, that recruiting part, you know. Yeah, it was it's that sense that uh, Maddie Kramer is it is it just a story of like women you can come out here and do it for yourselves or is it like a corporate sock puppet? Uh, yeah, are you being suckered into doing it? Are and the answer, I think the answer into is doing it's it, both. You know, like, <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, Mrs. Reed also is big into recruiting everyone. And I, I, there was, who is a wealthy woman who lives in the town of Big Sandy where Adelaide lives nearby. And I liked those scenes where she was like complimenting yeah. everyone who made it through the winter and talking about yeah. how all the weak ones would leave. But you're tough. You guys stayed. I like I'm sure that that happened in real life I believe I believe I could imagine that happening in American frontier Yeah I mean life. definitely the Well I mean sorry go ahead No please please I just was going to say yeah the neoliberal um kind of yeah femi- feminism is as corporate convenience I was just like sitting there yeah thinking about all of the ways that things have been sold to me as an independent and tough woman <laughs> you know I need my my yes. big pens for women etc Yeah <laughs> Is this woke capitalism <laughs> Well but you know to the other uh Point like so in doing some of my research, uh, in particular, there there was a newspaper for that county, Choctaw County, uh, called the Bear Paw Mountaineer, and um, I, to my great good fortune, they had like all of it going back to like the like nineteen oh six or seven or eight was available online, and so I just in over over many months, I was I would just read every week's paper. Uh, like little by little, just to get a sense of, you know, because like that's the kind of thing, like the historian is cu- talking about this grand sweep of time, but the Bear Paw Mountaineer is talking about what movie came to town that week. And I want to know what movie came to town that week or what performers were there that week. And one of the things that would be in there would be the uh, kind of like the equivalent of like the op-ed that talked about now the the real rough and tumble folks, we've stuck around. We're gonna we we're making it through the winter. The others will be back, but for us, we're the you know we're the true Montana. As I said, like she's got to do that, you know. Uh, and it is you know it's true, and it is also a sales pitch to, to keep them there. And that I mean, the mountaineer of course appears in the narrative, and there's a there's a character in particular who's very attached to reading it, and and it does also stretch out to kind of the larger narrative of the world. So we're reminded that there's a war going on. Um, elsewhere, even if it seems far away. Um, and you mentioned this a little bit before, but I, I kind of want to go back to it, to, to the emotional entry point 
um, for this story because your protagonist is in your kind of larger body of work. Generally, you've written from the point of view of men. Um, Mm -hmm. And I was kind of wondering if you could just talk a little bit about how that shift felt to you, how writing Adelaide felt to you um, in relation to those previous protagonists, like if there were challenges or pleasures that were unexpected. Well, the biggest challenge uh, was, um, well, obviously it was number one, maybe in a way, uh, writing out of a experience that I have not lived, right? Writing a different experience. And uh, to be totally honest, the great gift of my life is that my wife in particular, but also my agents, uh, were women who I could talk to about various things. And in particular, my wife, who's a writer as well, like at night or at some point in the day, you know, we might say, I'm thinking of doing this in the scene or I this is what's going to happen next. I'm wondering. And you're just talking out loud, but it's a person whose opinion you trust. So you want to hear what they say. And there were so many times where... Uh, Emily would say, like, uh, I just can't see how a woman would do that. I I can't see that choice. And the choice usually came down to, in a way, safety, right? Interesting. And uh, uh, what I mean is, like, there were, like, um, so even when she's riding the train, uh, the boat alone and the train alone, and not, I don't think, I, I hoped I didn't oversell it, but she is thinking about, I'm the only woman here. I'm the only black woman here. I'm the only, th- how's this going to work? But like in my earlier drafts, I, in, for lack of better terms, I had Adelaide move through the world the way I move through the world, which is, uh, I'm no kind of tough guy or anything like that. But generally speaking, I don't really feel scared about going places. You know, uh, I walk into wherever I walk into. I don't, people mostly leave me alone and I leave them alone. The end. And uh, my wife's point was like, that sounds great, but that is not everyone's lived experience. So let's talk about it. And so the more we talked about it, the more I was able to sort of reorient my mind as we were sitting down to, as I was sitting down to write. But uh, my, my, the other thing I took from talking with my wife and also watching my wife was that um, while let's say the 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 cost that I was trying to f- filter in was like a, a need for greater awareness about one's environment and threats within the environment, like if we're saying like as a woman's perspective versus my perspective, but the other side of it was the gift, the benefit I saw of her female friendships, right, and the way that that is a thing that I don't really have access to, uh, and that might I'm I'm more socially isolated than maybe most everyone regardless of gender i just don't really make that many friends but um but well, i'm sorry oh, no, to no. Hear that. i choose this is a choice <laughs> it is an active choice uh, okay. uh, for sure right. we'll be yeah. your friend <laughs> but um but i could see the way she she was so nourished by there's this friend who she sees and they go and get breakfast together. Then there's a friend who's in Vermont, but they check in. And then there's the friend who's in Brooklyn and they get together. And I was like, okay, that's the other thing I need to capture is the way that that's how Adelaide is sort of, as much as she's in this place that feels very foreign, this is the gift of the place. There's other lone women. And that those relationships are what's going to save her life. Um, so that is in no way to suggest that like, any of this is an either or, right? Like there's plenty of men who have uh, large social groups. There's plenty of women who don't think about their safety, I'm sure, uh, who don't think about their safety and their and all the rest in, 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 
in public settings. But for me, that was the, those were some of the two big shifts. And so it was kind of fun to go like, okay, this is, this is not like the other books for better or worse were often just me placing myself into um, the characters and then having them go from there. In this case, it was like, no, I got to think different. And I, and it was kind of a blast. It sounds like it really affected the plot and actually just kind of what. Absolutely. That's so. I mean, it, yeah, it, it, I just think, you know what it is, is like, a, so my wife writes fiction and nonfiction, but with her fiction, I think there are so many moves that she takes for granted as like, this is how a story will, will grow and build and it will be these things. And for me, those were new things. Some of them were new tools. And I was like, oh, I'm going to use those tools. And those tools only blossomed as like the other lone women came into her life and Miss Reed came into her life. And, and uh, yeah, it was like a chance for me, a window into a whole other way to live. I think one of the one of my favorite scenes is there's a part where um, a bunch of characters, um, Adelaide and her, her friends, um, who she's finding, some of her first friends, they go to a dance and she is in the room and she's very aware that she's the only black woman and I was just reminded of every moment, um, including like this past weekend, um, when I was would walk into a room and be like, oh, yep, looking around, not seeing yes. any other people of color. OK, these people yeah. all seem nice and also still hyper aware of that visibility. And so she's taking joy in their company. And then that um, but her sense of being hyper visible, she can't she it's it's rendered really beautifully. And so like one of the really um, one of the ways that the novel generates suspense is through these questions of friendship and neighborliness like right she's a she's a lone woman and every time someone knocks on the door i'm like adelaide oh shit who's there is it a friend (laughs) do they have eggs do they have a gun are they coming to take your eggs like what's what's the you know there's so much suspense in that simple in that simple knock and um and there are all of these other lone women and um on her way to montana she meets a family the Mudges, um, who is this great Dickensian naming, uh, <laughs> a mother and her her four sons who um, who wear you know we we understand that they're blind and they they have handkerchiefs tied around their heads and so this is like our first impression of them and she's so she's like another lone woman with these four sons and um, I'm gonna I'll avoid spoilers but they play a significant role in the novel and I'm curious to hear you talk about how those characters emerged for you and and when you think about writing about um like that kind of neighborly suspense that i'm talking about how does that contrast with writing about kind of like more classic horror monstrousness which you've also done um in your body of work how you how do you think about disguise and transformation and and what has historically been like a problematic a somewhat problematic intersection of disability and horror Yes. Well, I think, you know, uh, so to, to, to start at the most uh, concrete, the mudges themselves, um, I just based them on some neighbors that my mom and I really hated. Oh, my God. Uh, we profoundly hated them. Uh, and they lived uh, next door to us. Um, and they were, in my very biased opinion, vile human beings, awful, awful human beings. Uh, and... Um, they were particularly hard on my mom. So it was young. We were obviously younger, but my mom and the Mrs. Mudge equivalent um, had a really terrible time. And then from my perspective, because I was maybe a younger person, not that year, 12, 13, the narrative that we had was like, and she got her children to, she kind of sicked her children on my mom and all these 
nasty little ways, right? More than likely, it's just that the kids were, uh, she was having a hard time dealing with that many kids and they were just not well-behaved or well-watched, right? But it became a foundational thing for us. Like when we would talk about like bad people, we would use the name of this family as like, oh yeah, they were like <laughs> these people. They were mudges. Uh, we had, they had a different name, obviously. Sure. Um, but it's close to mudges because I, I wanted to stick it to them without getting sued. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, so that part of the, 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 the menace and the, the loathing for them is just all me channeling that and trying to just exercise it almost. Right. Sure. But then the more I wrote them, the first thing that started to happen was I started to say like, well, they can't just be that. Right. There has to be more to them than that if they're going to stick around. Uh, and I knew they were. And so then I had to start thinking of it, exactly as I said a, a second ago about the real Mrs. Mudge. It's this one woman alone dealing with four sons and not in uh, a tenement in Queens, but in Montana in 1915. Um, if they turned out to not be completely on the up and up in order to survive, I might need to kind of understand that. I might need to at least grasp why someone would have to go to the lengths you find out they go to uh, in the st within the story and before the story begins. So all of that was sort of the mudges and pouring all that in, you know. Um, and quite frankly, the other thing was like, um, I tried to, the, ish, the question of the trunk and what's going on with the trunk, what's inside and all the rest, it was one mystery, but I knew that can't be all that is a threat out here or, or can create harm out here. I need some human beings who can be, uh, who, who offer potential for harm. Um, and I, and so then, and then that's when the mudges sort of entered the story. And then as, as time went by, I said like, and I need other things that are also potential harms. I just need harm after harm <laughs> yes. after harm. Um, and then throw Adelaide into the middle of that because it's just that much harder for her. It's just that much worse. But also, uh, I think if I had enough uh, potential threats building up, I felt like that might, again, bring you closer to what it might feel like to make that much of a journey alone and really not know who do I trust here and can I trust anyone. And so I said, like, can't be one thing, can't be two. It's got to be like three, four, five uh, different sort of avenues coming at her i think i'm not i think that answered at least maybe half. <laughs> yeah sorry it was kind of a it was like so so much that i'm curious about that was a sugi, <laughs> sugi special question it's like a sushi roll that also has fish on the outside and then several different things on the inside i do enjoy those, um, those all right rolls. yeah those yes. are good i love those are i love the questions and the rolls so there is a phrase that um and speaking of the role that that uh, women have in society at this particular time, um, Adelaide's mother says to her, "A woman is a mule," and it's this uh, it's an adage that that Adelaide keeps coming back to. That I think she resists, although also recognizes the truth of it in certain ways. Um, and I wondered if you could read us uh, a passage, sort of thinking about her and her physicality. Sure. So I'll dive right in. This is start of chapter twelve. Dawn appeared suddenly, quick as snapped fingers. Had she slept? She couldn't say. Last night she heard her father, felt her mother's hair, and now she was awake. 
The sunlight came bright through the cracks in the walls, and Adelaide became aware of herself again. Here I am. She must have slept, but it didn't feel like it. Outside, Mr. Olson's horses snorted, and she rose to her feet, walked to those windows, and peeked outside. He'd done it. Like he said he would, there was the wagon. There was the Seward steamer truck. There it was. Four horses, a wagon, Adelaide's trunk, all the mudges things, everything accounted for, but the wagon driver himself, nowhere to be seen. He'd tied the lead horse to the railing by the hotel. If those horses had simply tugged their heads, they would have torn the rotted wood from the ground. They were well trained to stay in their place. Now she looked at the trunk more closely. Even from here, something about it seemed wrong, but she couldn't be sure at this distance. Her shoulders stiffened and her throat closed. Adelaide tore open the door and moved down the hall, down the stairs so quick she almost fell. The hem of her dress spun around her ankles and she slammed against the wall at the bottom of the stairs. She felt no pain, didn't register it, though later she'd have a bruise on her left shoulder. Out the door and straight to the wagon. She didn't climb into it, she leapt. The wagon jerked as she landed. A sturdy woman, Adelaide Henry. Her mother took pride in the strength of the Henry women. A woman is a mule. This saying had its positive connotations as well. On days when Glenville had to travel away overnight, Eleanor and Adelaide made sure their farm ran right. At 10 years old, Adelaide could already control the plow. By the time she was grown, Adelaide found there were many advantages to being a big woman. You'd best believe it. Now that she was in the wagon, she could finally understand what had seemed off. The brass lock. It was still attached to the trunk, but it had been unlocked. It was open. Thank you so much. I We've intentionally left you listeners uh, on a cliffhanger. So pick up the book to find out what happens when the lock is open. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. So in this passage, Adele is kind of uh, throwing herself around, not noticing the physical toll it takes on her body. Um, and she's, you know, arguably something most farmers internalize early on. And she's, she's been someone who's been from an early age working and she knows and embraces that she's big and she's a big and strong woman connected to this upbringing. And so why was this physicality important to the story? I mean, the whole story is different if Adelaide is, if Adelaide's body is not this body. Yes. Um, well, I wanted, so on one level, I just wanted, um, um, uh, one of the things that I find often very confusing or whatever about like, uh, particularly let's say TV or movies of uh, stories set in in that past, especially in that rough and tumble farm past, uh, is how tiny the women are. I just really don't understand uh, like how, you know, this modern day actress, I'm supposed to believe she's doing this work out here. I mean, the dudes, maybe they're not, Maybe they're pretty buff as well, but it's a different it's a different physicality largely for the most part, you know. Uh, and uh, like if I have to think back, I think of like um, to my mind, uh, um, like Oprah in the color purple, uh, like that that time, or or um, or Whoopi in the color purple, like the idea of a person who seems like they could at least work this land and not collapse after forty five minutes of labor. Right. And I really so I really wanted you to understand her body 
as a body that has worked and that has become big and strong. And then also, um, like I would say uh, most of my books in some way really, really, really try to pay attention to the the physicality of my of the main character, if not the other characters as well, because uh, I I do think like I have a tendency, maybe many writers do, uh, to live in my own head, and then in early drafts of stuff, my characters never have bodies; they're just brains that sort of move through spaces, observing things to astounding levels of detail. Uh, but then you say like, but I don't know what they look like. I don't know what they do. Do they walk with a limp? Do they? Do they have a, a great high jump? Whatever it is. And it takes like two or three drafts before I go, oh yeah, what do they look like? And more importantly, like what does their body do in the world, right? Uh, and I find every time when I start to think about that, it always deepens the story and creates also narrative uh, possibilities and developments, right? Um, so I wanted uh, to focus on Adelaide body, Adelaide's body for all those reasons. But then... There's also a real story-based reason that, again, goes back to the trunk that felt like, um, almost like um, she had to be this big and strong. Um, and I, I mean, for lack of a better term, it's almost like it was fated or something like that uh, so that she could be the most powerful and responsible um, version of herself as as the story and as the world and as the narrative would need her to be as time went by. And I think in some ways this answer is maybe getting at some of what I was thinking about before in terms of ability and disability and, and transformation because um, like the body, yeah, the bodies in this story have their consequences. Um, and there's also sort of, yeah, a shifting sense of safety and danger that is connected to the bodies of not only of Adelaide, but of, the other characters. So we've been talking about the lone homesteaders, but in Lone Women, you also tell us a lot about communities. In the second half of the book, the cast of characters thickens and towns develop. Adelaide lives in Big Sandy, which we've been discussing. And then nearby in Helena, there's the Ming Opera House, which is this signifier of culture and also wealth. So in the first half of the book, we've seen these vast, empty landscapes and also a lot of poverty. And now we see this. And then the Reeds, a rich family in Big Sandy, build their version of it. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the research you did to make that setting and that stage for some of what happens in the second half of the book. Yeah, well, as I was doing my research, one of the things that uh, really stayed with me, struck me, was the the push in various towns and cities to, for lack of better terms, to civilize the West, right? So it wasn't enough to people were building homes and farming and ranching and all that stuff. There was a, a push by a, in particular, I would say a certain class of, uh, of homesteaders out there, right? Of wealthier homesteaders to, <clears throat> to bring what might be considered the best of European culture or, or Eastern seaboard culture to the West, just another level of the sort of colonizing experiment, you know? And that, that was, what struck me as the most interesting version of that was the opera house. And in particular, like the, the Ming opera house was a real opera house that I was just fascinated that of the things that you're building, that this is the thing you're building as opposed to, uh, you know, and, and they are, there was a distinction. It, it's, it is a theater, but it's more, it's more than that. It's an opera house. And the sort of the sense of opulence, the sense of European culture, 
existing there seemed in a way like I was trying to figure out like how do I best contrast like the lone women are living for the most part in these tiny cabins that could re literally be blown over by a strong enough breeze, uh, wind rather, one night. What would be the contrast to that in town? And I, you know, the standard stuff I think was like, there's the saloon or there's the hotel. But I felt like those are all things I've seen. So what's going to make this stand out? And then when I came across the opera house idea, I said, oh, that's going to be it. It's It's got to be. As soon as you say like, it's Big Sandy, it's literally one block there's barely a couple hundred people. How do I tell you about the aspirations of the richest family there? I tell you that they built an opera house. And you and, and my hope is that you, you go, okay, I get it. Uh, this is all the all their aspirations are, are in this place. And then also selfishly storytelling wise, I get to say, well, where could I get the whole town together? They go to the opera house, right? So it also served a narrative uh, design as well. And it does a nice job of underlining some very, the kind of, in the the register of what happens going up and up with all of those reveals that we were talking about earlier. That juicy story has a has a kind of interesting stage to unfold on. I, thanks. I, I hoped that that would be the case. Well, thanks so much for joining us. And again, uh, we encourage our listeners to go out and pick up Lone Women, which is out now. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Rachel Layton. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. And please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of this interview at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel, and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading.